Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I don't know, it's a very pure experience. And when you're by yourself in such a an extreme environment, everything feels very heightened. Everything's more extreme. So small, small things become, they feel like so much more to you. Hello and welcome to the Modern Adventurer podcast. I'm John Horsfall and on this weekly podcast, I talk to adventurers and explorers from around the world who have made remarkable and daring journeys in recent years. From Everest climbers to polar explorers, world record holders and many more. But what is left for the modern adventurers in the 21st century? Well, let's find out. My next guest is an adventurer and founder of the British Adventure Collective. A couple of years ago, he did something which I was slightly jealous of. He, he went from Chamonix to Zermatt, what's known as the Hart Route, in 24 hours, skinning over the mountains day and night. On the podcast today, we talk about some of his incredible trips. So I am delighted to introduce... Aaron Rolf to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, John. Nice to chat. Well, it's been absolutely incredible to get you on finally after all these months. And I think what's so interesting about your story is how, you know, over the past couple of years, you set up this amazing company, the British Adventure Collective. And from that, you've been doing these incredible trips for people who don't know you probably the best place to start I always like is at the beginning and about how you fell in love with this sort of adventurous life. Yeah, so I was actually pretty fortunate to grow up in the Lake District um, in the northwest of England. So to be honest, there wasn't a great deal of other options uh, other than to get into adventures. There's not a great deal going on um, in Cumbria other than lots of mountains, plenty of lakes. So I was really lucky because I was raised in the hills and and sort of running and and fell walking and and mountain biking from the yeah, from a young age, and then sort of started to gain more independence on my adventures, I suppose, from there in my teen years. And yeah, it's just gone, projects have just got bigger and bigger, and, um, you know, looking a bit more international um, over recent years as well, which has, yeah, been fun. And now, um, well, now I live in Chamonix, uh, which is a pretty great place to be based for adventure. No shortage of mountains, they're a little bit bigger than the Lake District. Yeah. Well, that was the thing is like you've, you used to be based in London and then you set up shop in Chamonix. What was the sort of first adventure, like big adventure, which sort of struck a nerve and made you sort of go, right, I want to sort of take this a bit further? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, I actually um, came to Chamonix for the Outroute, um back in, I guess, four years ago. So for those who don't know, the Haute Route is a sort of a classic traverse from Chamonix to Zermatt. Um, it's usually done over sort of six six days or seven days. It's 125 kilometers with 8,000 meters ascent. So I did it in the usual format with some friends and it was my kind of my first proper ski tour experience and absolutely fell in love with it. And I mean, Chamonix obviously is an iconic town with a huge reputation, but it's just the amount of landscape and terrain here is just infinite. You could probably spend an entire life 
exploring this region and still not not complete it sort of thing. So yeah, I kind of fell in love with it from there and then uh, managed to come back out last winter. And uh, although ski lifts were of course closed, managed to do a lot of ski touring and got uh, got reasonably fit during that winter with no other choice other than uh, getting the skins on. Really. Oh, wow. And yeah, because that's sort of how I stumbled across you was because of this heart route adventure. It, it was sort of that trip and the sort of planning that goes into one of these trips, I mean, how does the idea from concept to reality sort of come about with that? So, yeah, it's a, it's a trip I had in mind from the whole of last winter, sort of, I guess, a bit of a pipe dream idea. And then as I got you know fitter throughout the winter, it sort of became a little bit more like a potentially realistic thing to try. Um, so, yeah, I wrecked the route a little bit beforehand and, and checked to to see you know that i was confident on the route and and as i uh, built my days to get bigger and bigger decided to to try in one big push there's actually um a british ski mountaineer and photographer called ben tibbetts who i'd seen had done the route originally um and then i decided to have a go at the verbier variant of the route which is the most popular one um which as far as i knew no one had ever done in one one push before in one day so um yeah it came to springtime and then it was time to give it a go got my equipment sort of refined over the over the winter um and i hadn't really done a day bigger than three thousand meters ascent so it was potentially a bit of a bold undertaking but with enough food and a bit of grit um decided just to go for it and it and all panned out okay in the end it's usually done over seven days you decided to do it in 24 hours yeah that's right so there's just some i don't really know what it was about the trip because i'm not really um, necessarily an endurance athlete per se and I certainly am not a ski mountaineer in terms of wearing lycra and skiing on super lightweight skis so it was a bit of a, a an oddball project in a sense but I kind of um, just got excited about the prospect of just setting off with me you know on my own solo trip with my skis from Chamonix and kind of like the idea that it was sort of no sleep before I reached Zermatt wherever that was you know whenever that was going to be so actually it ended up taking about 30 hours in the end um, which was, yeah, it was just a big adventure. And the main goal, I guess, to make sure I was safe and, and could do it was to get there before the second night. So um, I set off in the early hours of the morning at 8 a.m., skied through the day. Um, yeah, as you said, went via or Glacier de Tour, went down to Champay, um, and then cycled to Verbier. And then from Verbier, went to a roller and then over to Zermatt. And yeah, I got there sort of in the afternoon the following day, um, and it was just a, a big old adventure. I, I mean, it was painful, it was tough, but actually I just loved it. It didn't feel like, um, there was no point where I said I didn't want to be here or I wasn't enjoying it. Yeah, because that's the interesting thing is the bit from Chamonix to Verbier, because I was meant to be doing the Patrol de Glacier, which is reverse route from Zermatt to Verbier. But from Verbier to Chamonix, you have to go down the mountain and then back up, don't you? In terms of, and in the spring, there's no snow. So you were cycling once you had got down up the windy roads of Verbier to add the sort of Medran lift at 1500, then skinned up to Montfort. That's right. Yeah. So I, I obviously connect. Or just before it by Bec de Ross and Montfort. Yeah, connected um, Champagne and Verbier by bike because the snow coverage is is really good enough. It's something most people just jump on a bus and then grab the lift, but obviously I wanted to do it human powered. So um, 
the cycle actually provided a really nice intermission for, <laughs> from all of the ski touring. Um, it felt quite different, you know, different muscle groups, change of scenery. Although, as you say, it was a big old grind up to Verbier. It did feel kind of different and, and quite enjoyable. But then, yeah, back on skis from Verbier onwards and skinned out through the resort and then, yeah, on towards, um, well, yeah, between Vectoros and Montfort, I think, the cold there. Um, and, yeah, and it just started getting dark. The, it was sort of, I think it was a reasonable moon. Um, and with the Vectoros kind of looming over you and as darkness fell, it was pretty epic scenery just to be scooting along by myself. And the sunset we'd had in Verbier, and you'll remember you, you spent time in Verbier, you always just get the most magic sunsets. Um, it's pretty epic. Yeah, it's an incredible sort of self-facing resort, which looks way down the valley. And yeah, you do get these sort of epic sunsets that happen there, and even sunrises. And sort of the, what was the sort of feeling like, um, sort of skinning on your own in the middle of the night from Verbier towards Zermatt with no one around? Yeah, it was, it's, a, I think, quite a special feeling. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of people ask, are you worried or scared? And to be honest, I was quite calm. It was, it's so quiet. And it was, I don't know, it's a very pure experience. And when you're by yourself in such a, an extreme environment, everything feels very heightened. Yeah, everything's more extreme. So small, small things become, they feel like so much more to you. Um, but yeah, no, I, I kind of thrive on that independence when you're, there's no one else there yourself to look after yourself so you just kind of have to take it easy and, and manage you know any hesitations or fears you may have and um yeah the, the scenery was just unreal and, and thankfully you know it was a good night obviously i didn't do it in, in a bad weather day um it was a nice evening and there was potentially going to be some light snow showers and nothing came in so it was it was great but yeah just just following the path making sure i was navigating the right way as i get progressively more tired was obviously key but I just thrived on the situation, to be honest. Were you studying maps beforehand or had you sort of not walked the route, but like studied it quite hard to know where not to go off the, the path? Because it's for people listening, it's, it's backcountry. So there, it already been sort of skinned out in a sense, not skinned out. That's probably the wrong word to use, but tracks. Yeah, there, was a, there was a skin track to follow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you do, I had studied the route in, in quite a lot of detail and I'd actually done, because I'd never previously done the Verbier section. So two weeks prior, a friend and I went to do a bit of a recce and get used to the route. So over two days, we took our time and kind of got to know it in the day. And obviously, if you can visualize it in the day, it's easier to understand and navigate at night when you can see so much less. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's all glacial terrain. So you certainly don't want to take too much of a wrong turn. Um, plenty of crevasses you don't want to fall into yeah especially like for someone who's as you say probably listening would sort of be more sort of fearful towards avalanches because you're going off piece but in terms of the route that's sort of laid out would you say that it was relatively safe and well trodden yeah i would say that yeah there's there is one deviation i took which was to kind of cut a section off it was a little bit quicker which involves skiing sort of a 40 degree um, kind of mini couloir. That was a little bit spicy, I suppose. Um, and it was it had some quite big ice chunks on it, sort of avalanche debris. So that at night was, 
a little bit more committing than most of the route, but you wouldn't have had to go on that. So if people are interested in, in looking at the route, it's pretty mellow on the whole. It's not too extreme. Um, it's just obviously making sure that you're you're going the right way at the right time. And the, the, in terms of avalanche risk, the, the funny thing about night and, and as well the speed in which you can traverse, it's actually far better at night because, of course, everything's firm, everything's hard, the temperatures are cool, the snow's not getting any hotter. So actually, although I couldn't see further than you know 20 30 40 meters in front of me and the navigation was difficult the snow safety was actually probably a lot greater and there's a there's a large section on the verbier route which relies on a really good traverse you need to hold as much height as you can and that in spring conditions in the afternoon can be really tough because it's all soft and you're falling in you know all the rest of it whereas actually at night i was flying along you know on this rock solid sort of icy snow so it actually had, had benefits in some ways amazing and uh yeah that, that's the thing is i suppose being out in the sort of back country of the mountains at night all alone it's just that's just must your your senses just must have been so heightened and just this most incredible feeling you know there was this your first big trip doing so yeah i think it was my first sort of nighttime full nighttime alpine adventure i suppose which is quite a big committing you know decision to keep skiing all the way through the night um no matter what happens so yeah it was it was pretty intense yeah, it was a great feeling um but as you say you just feel everything you feel the the sound of the snow the you know the the way that the light the moonlight is glancing on on the crystals of the snow everything just feels heightened um i actually listened to some music for sections as well which just puts you in quite a nice frame of mind um, and then, you know, when the sun started to, to come up eventually, the other end, you know, it was a pretty tough couple of hours between three and five in the morning. And then when the sun does come back, it's just this whole new lease of life, this whole new energy that, you know, promotes you forward. And what was the feeling like getting into Zermatt and the sort of feeling of finishing in just over 24 hours, 30 hours, a route that usually takes seven days? It was quite surreal, the feeling. I, it was almost anticlimactic, if I'm honest. It was like, you know, you, I, I spent a winter or longer thinking about this thing that I didn't know was possible. And then when I reached there, it was almost like, oh, it's done. You know, I suppose people, people have that feeling sometimes when they do something that they weren't sure they were going to be able to do. But yeah, it, it felt quite surreal. And I actually, if I'm completely honest, I think I might have had more in the tank. I wasn't completely done, um, which is interesting. It does open my eyes to the two prospects can i go further when we do something bigger in one big day that's always a very dangerous uh <laughs> dangerous psyche i i when you get that feeling of like you've sort of completed something which you never thought was possible and then you're like oh i can do more yeah and then you try and start pushing it and then after that did you feel that you were sort of hooked on this and wanted to actually explore it further see how far you could go yeah it's something that's been on my mind particularly now this winter um being out in chamonix it's like whether i can push a little bit more and, and do a bigger day out uh, so the equipment i used because i kind of wanted to enjoy the skiing and and the day i actually wore very ordinary clothes i didn't wear any lycra i didn't have ski skis they were kind of ordinary touring skis so i do wonder if, if i went full full schema um, at the cost of my credibility uh, <laughs> in adventure. I wonder how far we could go. Um, but there is a, there's an ultra royal traverse of Mont Blanc, which is 
potentially uh, a next one to try. It's another huge day just doing the entirety of the Massif. Uh, again, it's another Ben Tibbetts project, actually. Um, he's a good inspiration. He lives just down the road, which was always useful. But. Yeah, I, I suppose it's probably sort of similar to uh, we had Mark Beaumont on who circled around the world in like 90, 2000 and like six or something. And he did it in 150, 97 days or something. And he had panniers and everything and went around the world, had an amazing time. And then afterwards, people started breaking that record. And then he went back about 15 years later and got it down to under 80 days. You know, when you cut out everything, you cut this, cut that, suddenly, and just laser eye focused on time just to see how far you could possibly push it. Quite exciting. And that's something probably you are, yeah, (laughs) probably want to sort of explore further with it. Yeah. Is actually how far can you go from Chamonix to Zermatt? Yeah, I mean, something I'm definitely keen to look at doing an extension route and see if there's a bigger day that can be done. There's something about one giant day that really appeals. It's just this huge adventure where you're all in. It's like this hyper focus. Nothing else matters for that day. Um, and then obviously after the day, it's all done and dusted and you can continue with whatever your normal life looks like. But there's something about that sort of, I don't know, it's such a grand adventure in the shortest term that, that quite appeals. Um, so yeah, watch this space. Maybe I'll see if I can go further, go faster. Oh, there you go. And from that, though, you then started doing more and more of these sort of much bigger adventures because beforehand you were very much sort of adventuring in the Lake Districts, probably more weeks, weekends. And then that was your first big extreme trip in a sense. The first time you really stepped outside your cut, your comfort zone massively and prepared for it still had more in the tank. So with that, were you like, okay, what could I do next? Yeah, certainly. I think it, it's, it's certainly sort of made me reevaluate my perspective of, of what is attainable in terms of challenges. Um, you know, as you say, when you think something is just out of reach or, or a real big push and then suddenly it's within your, your zone, then suddenly you look further. But yeah, I think the, a key focus for me will be to go on bigger trips um, in, the, in the future. Um, as I say, I do enjoy short, sharp, big pushes, but there's, I think, a very different mental game to doing longer trips. So this summer, I'm yeah undertaking a, a longer project, which will be a few months long, and obviously keeping that um, you know mindset, focus, and drive for three months is a very different uh, psyche to required for 24 hours. Both both have their challenges, but they're but they're very different, you know. Yeah. And uh, because after that, you, you did the 7-7 seven, seven, or the Alpine 7. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was actually before the Alpine 7. But... And was the idea of sort of cycling to each thing and then climbing or was it just about the climbing? This time it was just about the climbing. Um, we wanted to try and attempt the seven Alpine countries high points in one week. So it was, I guess it's similar. It's, you know, high impact intense uh, rush around you know central europe but yeah we, so we started off in in um slovenia and triglav and then we went through to austria uh, germany Liechtenstein, switzerland and then and mont blanc uh, it was a cool trip yeah i mean it was with a friend and it was it was quite ad hoc to be completely honest it wasn't um 
<laughs> entirely well thought out, which sometimes the best adventures are, you know, you're just going with the flow and, and seeing how it goes. But unfortunately, we didn't quite get the perfect weather for Monte Rosa, so to Spitzer. So we only got to the refuge and had to turn back um, thereafter. But we did the other five peaks of six countries. So, yeah, it was a hell of an adventure. It was more about sort of trying to experience them all than sort of break any sort of record. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we wanted it to be like a, a fast paced, high energy trip. But it, the thing that was ended up being quite refreshing is just the diversity of landscapes. And you, you know, you see the Alps as a uniform one thing, but the difference between the Julian Alps in Slovenia and, and you know, the, the Alps in Chamonix is huge, both culturally and landscape and people. And just to experience in such a short time the diversity of, of all of those changing along the way um, was a really cool, cool feeling. Yeah, that, that was sort of the interesting thing when we went around, we went from like Switzerland, France, Italy, and then into Slovenia. And as you said, Triglav was like for us, it's just like the most spectacular mountains, like really dramatic. Whereas other Alpine, maybe Swiss Alps, where I was less dramatic, but like these were sort of like, I don't know, 1,500, like sheer cliff faces out of nowhere, just going down. Cliffs, yeah. it, it was completely, it was just like mind blowing because some, I suppose, as you say, sometimes these ad hoc adventures where you're not really that prepared of what you're going to see or what you're going to do, they make for some of the most memorable and most exciting trips possible. Definitely. I, I think as well, there's a temptation in the Alps to focus on the, the larger peaks, which usually are in Switzerland, France, or sometimes Italy. So all the 4,000ers are really in those countries. Whereas you to go across to, as you say, Slovenia, you know, to the Julian Alps or Liechtenstein, for example, I think if it wasn't for this, you know, idea, this reason we had to go to Liechtenstein, I would never have gone near these peaks, but they were totally remote, quite wild, actually. Um, the most challenging of all of them was in Liechtenstein, peculiarly which is not the highest. I think it was the lowest, in fact. But yeah, so just to, to have an angle or a reason to tie this sort of trip all in together, it just, it just worked really well to, to experience and explore areas that we might not have gone to otherwise. I think sometimes with those sort of trips, even if you're just doing it as a sort of thing, it, it gives you that opportunity just to explore, as you say, these countries, which you otherwise wouldn't, to sort of try and tie them in. Because as you say, you Liechtenstein, which you said you probably would never have gone, by tying the sort of seven biggest peaks in the seven Alpine mountains. By doing that, you get to visit these places you otherwise wouldn't. For sure. And I, and I think, I, think I, I quite often resist the temptation to sort of bucket list or to, to box check. Um, but in fact, I, th I think there can be some really positives of it, so long as you don't you know, let it completely rule your focus. And, and so maybe you're not missing out on adventures along the way. But sometimes, yeah, it takes you to places you wouldn't otherwise have thought about. And, and people are quite, I think people can be quite quick to, to negatively um, judge on, on people who are just ticking off, you know, be it Wainwrights or Munros or, or whatever. But actually, I think having a focus to just keep you going back to these places and exploring can be, can be really positive for people. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Um, you, I think there's two different ways of box ticking in a sense. It gives you opportunities to go to places which you otherwise wouldn't 
have ever planned on going. And sometimes when you incorporate them into these adventures, as you, as I just said, it sort of gives you that chance to visit Liechtenstein or Slovenia because this sort of idea or this going for the big mountains, you don't you otherwise would never really go there. There wouldn't be any reason. But those places are almost more dramatic well not more dramatic but in a sense they're more there's there's so much more to them than meets the eye i think in your expectation as well if it's lower or you don't know much about a place you can really be taken back when you don't you know you go there and actually you're surprised by how amazing a place is or or it's more scenery than you thought whatever it could be your expectation defines how how you're going to feel about it and if you go to these big name mountains that everyone knows, like Mont Blanc, you will have an amazing time for sure, but you'll be expecting to have an amazing time. So it maybe doesn't have that same impact that some of those lesser known peaks can. Yeah, it's the idea of if you go there with no expectation, you're never disappointed. Yeah, exactly. Which I always think is quite a good one. And from all this, you've set up the British Collect- Adventure Collective. Uh, for people listening, what's What's that about? Yeah, so we, we set up the, the collective basically to uh, promote adventures within the UK primarily um, to sort of encourage people and I guess, you know, inform people that there are some unbelievable wild spaces in the UK that a lot of people don't realize. Um, it was born on a bikepacking trip to the Highlands uh, with a few friends. We just jumped on a train again, very ad hoc. We were ill prepared. We didn't know what we were doing. We just had the best time, probably the best trip. Um, so we, yeah, that, that was kind of like a awakening almost of, you know, how truly spectacular some of the UK can be. Um, and yeah, there was a group of friends who decided to come together to sort of share our adventures and, and imagery to, to inspire people to make the most of that. And that's kind of now evolved to, to being a little bit more international as well. So, you know, we do trips abroad and also produce media for brands. Um, as a as a business aspect, and we also offer experiences for those wanting to try um, activities and and stuff in the lakes. So yeah, plenty going on there. Oh, amazing, uh, because yeah, also within it, you've got Emily Scott, who we had on the podcast in the very early stages about a year ago. Yeah, uh, she's sort of involved in it, or is she taking a bit more of a backseat? Yeah, now? she is. Yeah, she's currently ski instructing in Zermatt, so she's uh, not got the much free time to be doing lots of stuff. But she, uh, yeah, she did an amazing Monroe project, um, completely self-propelled, um, completely self-supported for, for three, four months. And uh, yeah, well, Emily and I have done loads of adventures together and we'll continue to. She's, um, yeah, one of my best adventure buddies. She's always reliable and up for, up for anything. Yeah, she's she's always, she's great. We had her on episode nine uh, for anyone who wants to sort of check that out. But um, going back, I suppose for you, you're now based in Chamonix and probably looking at more and more of these adventures. What's the sort of future hold for the British Adventure Collective and yourself? Yeah, it's a funny one. We've been going through a discussion of whether the British Adventure Collective can do alpine adventures or whether it matters whether it's the fact that we are Brits or whether the adventures need to be in the UK. Um, but I think we're, we're quite comfortable with the fact that there's lots of alpine adventures. And Chamonix actually has a, a very long um, standing history with British tourism from back in the 1920s all the way through. So it's 
been heavily the Brits have actually had a you know strong influence into how Chamonix is formed as a town. So I think it's quite still quite um, you know relevant to be the British Adventure Collective. But we've got um, quite a lot of UK adventures. So some big trail runs coming, some big kayak trips, um, and then yeah, I've got this big summer project which I will reveal more pretty soon. Um, but it's going to involve basically traveling around lots more countries, lots more peaks, and um, using an electric vehicle to travel between. Um, so yeah, they're really exciting, exciting one. Oh, that sounds amazing. And uh, I suppose now, uh, before the podcast start, we were sort of discussing about sort of travel and electric and everything. And uh, I imagine with electric vehicles now, you know, traveling around electric all over Europe, probably shouldn't be a problem as it might have been five years ago. Yeah. There's all sorts of, I'd say there's all sorts of infrastructure for it and it actually should be a lot easier. Um, as I said, we were planning on doing a, or hopefully still am, a project looking at biodiesel and it's the sort of difference between diesel, petrol, hydrogen and electric for the sort of future. But another one of your uh, big trips was uh, cycling from the Scilly Isles up to John O'Groats. And what was the reason for undertaking this trip this last summer? Yeah, so it was sort of born out of um, a lockdown daydream, if you like. Um, I'd always wanted to do Land's End to John O'Groats in some form, you know, to, to cycle the length of the UK. feels like a bit of a rite of passage uh, for any British adventurer. Um, but it just felt to me like to rush that journey just seemed um, like a waste. And, you know, putting all those miles on the bike and going a fairly direct route, it, I think would have missed quite a lot of the, the best bits of the UK. So it sort of extended it a little bit. So went from Scilly Isles all the way to the Shetlands and then did a, a very indirect route, which ended up being, I think, just shy of 3000 kilometers in the end. So it basically yeah came through all the best bits that I felt like I wanted to visit. So sort of up and down the southwest peninsula went fully into wales to brecon um and then actually the first time so after i'd got the go ahead from you know freedom had um returned and i jumped on the bike and went for it i actually um had a big bike crash um doing an activity and severed my colon um which is my first hospital trip to date um <laughs> it did it in style it wasn't wasn't a great day <laughs> So I had to then, yeah, call the trip and I had surgery and um, basically revisited it the following year to finish the job. And uh, what was some of the moments on that trip, having gone back a year later, what were some of the moments that really stuck out for you? Yeah, so when we resumed the trip, it was, I don't know if anyone remembers, but last May, we just had this horrible rain freezing cold it was really uncharacteristically cold and it was constant rain for about two weeks so that was the that was the starting the trip again which is nice the first week was just getting hammered with rain um but it was character building it's fine you do a trip in the uk you're going to get rained on right it's part of it but then when i actually hit the lake district it was like that you know everything cleared and god i was so grateful having had so much rain for so long we just got amazing weather from from then on, really. Um, the rest of the trip, all through the lakes up into Scotland, was just stand out. So it was pretty spectacular. And I mean, there was loads of different parts of the trip which were, you know, enjoyable, uh, of course. But the as soon as you hit the Highlands in the sun, there's just nowhere else like it. Um, it was amazing cycling through some of those sort of quieter roads and some of the gravel tracks in the Northwest Highlands with 
you know, surrounded by big peaks. We um, went up and climbed Sullivan as well and, and had a, a sort of camp on the top, you know, and you're looking out and you can just see countless lakes at every direction and you're a stone's th- throw from the sea. So it's a pretty spectacular place. Yeah, going back, I um, I do remember the May because Emily, Scott and uh, myself were paddleboarding in April and bizarrely, like the winter had been pretty awful. And for that one week, we had like really good weather. We had like six days of sunshine, frost, but sunshine. And then one day of pure rain. And then about a month later, quite a lot of people were like cycling and doing all sorts of stuff. Uh, there's a couple of adventurers and explorers that were doing stuff around the UK. And I was just watching them on yourself included, just get absolutely hammered yeah. by the rain. And like, there were just pictures of people just like on their bikes, just like, this is hell. This is just miserable. <laughs> it does sort of, sort of great to on you eventually. You just, keep getting that rain again you know one day or half a day fine but when it just comes again and again it's pretty challenging but it almost got used to it after the the week actually it just became the new norm and sort of being for people listening like being up in the highlands looking out on a sort of sunset what how how could you describe it to them the sort of feelings that you get when you just look out over the horizon with all these incredible lakes it's almost the, the feeling of space, like I've you rarely experience. It's just such an expansive area, and and for, as a photographer, it's interesting when you always try and do these places justice. It's particularly challenging to shoot it. Um, you you have this obviously lack of detail if you shoot on a wide angle lens because it's just so big, everything looks too small. But you know when you're there, it just feels like it just goes on and on. Um, and it's it was more akin to something you'd you'd witness in the fjords of Norway or or what felt it feels semi-arctic up there it's a really special feeling but it's probably worth me mentioning we this project was actually for a film um so essentially to showcase you know the amazing activities you can do within the uk in one big bikepacking trip um so it's called the great escape if anyone's interested to see it it'll do do it far more justice than my words ever ever could do and uh where can people watch this yeah, it's on Vimeo and YouTube. So if you just search for British Adventure Collective, The Great Escape, it'll come up. And yeah, I mean, we had uh, a sort of a few friends of mine following the, the film crew, and they are unbelievable cinematographers. So to to really try and portray how incredible this area was, it was it was great to not have to be shooting it all myself, but instead kind of focusing on the activities and the ride and the experience. Wow, incredible! Yeah, I think. Um... Well, we'll leave a description to your, sorry, a link to your website uh, in the description below so people can check it out at thebritishadventurecollective.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a review if you've enjoyed the show so far. A massive thank you to those who have already reviewed it, SP Jewelry and Mr. Sir from Canada, who recently commented and reviewed the podcast. There's a part of the show where we ask the same five questions to each guest each week, um, with the first being on your sort of trips and expeditions, what's the one gadget that you always take with you? Yeah, uh, I actually always use my phone, controversial. Um, I know, obviously, a lot of um, once you go on adventures about disconnecting, and I do try and reduce any screen time. But I have to say, I used FatMap on my phone a lot um, for any route planning. 
if you're in complex terrain, it's just such a brilliant tool to be able to navigate. You've got loads of overlays so you can see the gradient, you can see the aspect. You know, it's just such a, um, a useful bit of kit that I wouldn't go anywhere without it. And, and then I can have maps for everywhere I'm going without having to carry a physical map. Yeah. Uh, that's very true. A charged phone. <laughs> do you take a little battery pack as well? You do. Yeah, you've got to. And, and obviously there's an element of reliance on the, on technology here. So people probably be a little bit careful if you're going into, you know, tough conditions or, or um, you're going to get rained on heavy, then make sure your phone's well protected. And the battery life's good because you don't want to be left without it otherwise. Yeah, I, I tried using what you call it, like solar panels to charge my phone sometimes. And it's they usually only work in like really, really hot conditions. And then if it's so hot, then it overheats the uh, phone and the battery. So it's sort of almost counterproductive. <laughs> yeah, you need, yeah there's, a, there's a narrow window where it actually works. But Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, what is your favorite adventure or travel book? Yeah, I think Chris Bonington's Ascent. There's, um, it's essentially his biography covering a huge range of his career, which is obviously you know massively extensive. But there's, um, there's just a real kind of raw grit to that era of mountaineering. Um, and and the, the things that they used to climb is just incredible. And I just love... Um, how, how poor their equipment was back then and how bold they were. They were just pushing the boundaries in, in a way that I'm not sure modern, many modern athletes do. Um, and there's something just really exciting about that era, which I think is hard to beat. And he's, he's a great writer, of course. But. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Um, why are these adventures important to you? Um, that's a good question. I, I honestly almost don't know, which is the worst answer ever. Um, it's it's so deep rooted to to who I am. I I don't know how to live any other way. I know that sounds really cliche, but um, there's just something that that within me that needs to be on on an adventure of, of some kind all the time, and and that doesn't have to be extreme or it doesn't have to be really physical or even that long, but just something with a sense of unknown and and, and you know going somewhere that you you haven't been before. Um, that sense of exploration, be it local or or global. Um, it's just, it's just, yeah, deep rooted. Um, but yeah, couldn't, couldn't quite define it. Is there like a little motto that you live by when you're on these adventures? Yeah, maybe. Oh, well, in terms of the motto, do you know what one quote that I do like, actually really like? Um, have you, I presume you've seen 14 Peaks. Yes. Yeah. When he says, I'm hesitant to swear, but he says, when you think you're fucked, you're only 45% fucked. <laughs> and I just think it's brilliant. And it's so true. There's, there's so much more in the tank than, I think people realize you're capable of and every time you push that, you know, comfort zone, you push that envelope or you push yourself physically, you just find there's more in there. So long as you can be well fed and have enough water, then there's just so much more in the tank than you think you've got. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, Great, great documentary. Um, Yeah, it's it's, that's the one thing as as we were sort of alluding to earlier, when you think you're done, you can always just go that little bit further. Yeah. Will you ever find the true limit? That's the question. Exactly. People listening yeah. um, probably are always keen to sort of travel and go on these sort of big grand adventures like yourself. What's the one thing that you would recommend to people wanting to get started? Yeah, I think, I think just you, you need to be, um, first of all, willing to push your comfort zones. 
Um, and obviously that's relative to your experience. So there is no better way just to take the first step, you know? So, so whatever that may be, maybe it's just sleeping outside for one night, um, you know, and you'll do it wrong. You'll, you'll be cold one night. You'll, you won't have the right kit. You'll get wet. Um, and that's just part of the learning experience. I think the key is just have the boldness to, to take that first step, the big move, because we've all started somewhere. Um, you know, I, I've definitely, I cycled across um, Scotland on that bike packing trip on a full suspension mountain bike with a giant backpack. It was a brutal experience, but I learned, you know, and, and without having the, the boldness just to try those things, then you'll, you'll never take the next step and, and learn. So yeah, just go for it. Yeah, it's very true. I had talking of like Chamonix where you are. I once uh, cycled up there, came through a like torrential rain and a thunderstorm. All my stuff got wet. And then I was camping just about ten mi- five miles outside. And all my stuff was soaked to the brim, been up in the mountains, freezing cold, had to like put on every layer I had in my back in my bag, which was not very much. And then spent the entire night shivering away. And it is by sort of just doing stuff like that, you learn. Like that was the last time I ever made decided, nah, I won't put it in like a water bag or anything <laughs> and do it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you only do that once and have a miserable night. You soon learn, don't you? Yeah, you learn quite quickly. Um, and finally, what are you doing now and how can people follow your adventures in the future? Yeah, so I've just got a collection of adventures planned for the year. So I'll be doing lots of stuff in the UK and then also out of Chamonix um, and, and lots of ski touring and, and ski mountaineering. Um, and if, yeah, if you want to find, find me, you can either go on Instagram, of course, British Adventure Collective or Aaron Rolf. Um, yeah, give us a follow. I'll give you a follow back. Amazing. Well, Aaron, it's been such a pleasure listening to your stories and uh, quite excited to find out what adventures are brewing uh, this summer. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. It's been good to chat. And I'll, yeah, I'll be sharing more about that trip pretty soon, so you won't have to wait too long. Okay. Well, when, 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 when will we all find out? Uh, a few weeks. I'll go live, I think. Um, yeah, just confirming the last details. It might, it might be uh, by the time this podcast comes out, so... Who knows? Exciting. Thanks, John. Big pleasure. Thank you for listening. You can watch it on YouTube now and don't forget to subscribe and review the podcast if you're listening on Apple. I hope to see you next week for another fascinating tale of adventure. But till then, have a great day and happy adventures.